Thank you. Sometimes you need some help. Let me ask you to turn to uh, Revelation 22 as we hopefully conclude this chapter, even though it won't conclude our full study, because as I said, we're going to also aim to do a summary message as well. But it's been a few weeks since we were in Revelation, hasn't it? I've been not here, Uh, but... uh, If you recall, the first five verses in chapter 22 end the revelations in the book of Revelation. It's the final vision that we find in this book. And in chapters 21 and 22, we have this glorious picture of New Jerusalem, of paradise restored, of the curse having been removed, of the new heavens and the new earth where we find the tree of life and the water of life. And this tree of life bears 12 different kinds of fruits, one every month, emphasizing the perpetual fruitfulness of that eternal life that is ours in Christ, that the curse is overturned once and for all, that Jesus makes all things new. There's no more death and mourning and crying and pain because that old order will have passed away. And we saw that the redeemed saints will serve the Lord, that we will see him face to face, that God himself will be our light and we will reign with Jesus Christ forever. And with that, the visions of Revelation end. And we come now to what uh, many call the epilogue, or the, the closing remarks in this book, the concluding statements about the revelation that John has received from the Lord and from the angel. Now, I want, to, I want you to recall that uh, John originally wrote this book. If you remember, Jesus gives this revelation to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. And you can look on a map and, uh, in, in the back of your Bible, and it may have the seven churches of Revelation, and they're in a, in a circle, basically, a, a convoluted circle, I guess, but a circuit. And, and these were actual churches in actual cities that John names. But those seven churches really represent all of the churches of all time in all places. And they represent the kind of struggles that uh, every church encounters at one point or another. Some churches are characterized by a lack of love like we see in Ephesus, or characterized by persecution like we see in Smyrna or Philadelphia, or characterized by a lukewarmness like we see in Laodicea. But these, these descriptions of these churches characterize the kind of challenges that the church throughout all time in history face, and the call to persevere and to endure, and the hope held out for those who do endure these eternal rewards that are held out for us in the final triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what follows Jesus' message to the churches are these dramatic visions that are intended to fuel that hope. He is coming to saints who are struggling with various challenges in their day and saying, there is yet hope, there is an eternal hope, and then we see these visions throughout Revelation intended to fuel our hope. John sees the throne room of heaven and the praises afforded to God the Father and God the Son. We see the outpouring of God's wrath upon his enemies in the seven seals and the seven bowls and the seven trumpets. We also see the saints protected and preserved, clothed in bright, shining garments, singing glory and salvation to the Lamb. We read 
of the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ and of his conquest over all of his enemies, over Satan, over the beast, the Antichrist, the the kings of the earth. And we read this beautiful description of the glory of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that he will share with every one of his people throughout all eternity. Now, I want to be very honest. We need to be honest with ourselves here, okay? We live a very comfortable life. We do. Uh, there are always trials wherever you are and wherever you live. But I was in, in India a few weeks ago, and someone said, uh, Pastor Jamie, how old are you? And I said, I'm 63. And they were shocked. How can a 63-year-old be as healthy as you are? And I was like, I don't know. And I realized we have a very easy, comfortable life compared to village life of a rural Indian or Nepali or people in so many other parts of the world. Our lives are relatively easy. We, as it were, have a taste of heaven on earth that others don't have. And so this heart longing for the things that we find described here may not be as intense for us as it might be for our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And if you're living in this beleaguered lifestyle where everything around you looks hopeless, then what John is describing here, it just might look too good to be true. It, it, it might be hard to believe that God is actually going to do the things that he tells us he's going to do in this, prop, in this prophecy, particularly for Christians who are beleaguered, who are oppressed, who are holding on and hoping for deliverance. But the powers of evil seem too big and too great and too deeply entrenched. Think Roman Empire persecuting these small and, by the worldly standards, very insignificant congregations of the Lord Jesus. So as we read the book of Revelation, it appears to be somewhat of a fantasy. But John wants to assure you and me that the world that he describes in Revelation is more real than the world that we can see with our eyes and hear with our ears and touch with our hands. And not only does John give us that assurance, we find that assurance coming from the angel, even more importantly, from the Lord Jesus himself. So, we begin in this text with a threefold testimony about the validity, the truthfulness of this word. Uh, In verse 6, the angel tells John, these words are trustworthy and true. Other translations say these words are faithful and true. Now, many of us love to read the great Christian fantasy novels, right? Lord of the Rings and Chronicles of Narnia and, and, and even Pilgrim's Progress. We, we read these and we find in them wonderful biblical truths. But we know that the characters are not real. And we know the stories are imaginary. They're the product of a sanctified imagination that's informed by a biblical worldview. Yes, but we understand that it's, it's made up. Uh, written to reflect biblical truth. But what you and I read in the book of Revelation, it also captures the imagination. But it's not a reflection of biblical truth. It is biblical truth. This is the Word of God. The, the characters and the battles described here uh, are very real. Yes, there are symbols. And we can't always be exactly sure what to do with those symbols, but they all reflect real, et- eternal realities. 
And in fact, what we read in Revelation is more real than what we can see with our eyes and touch with our hands in the world around us. And however hard it may be to believe some of what we read here, of the great triumph of the Savior. We, we look at this world, and it seems like the world is winning, and it may seem difficult to believe that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But, in fact, these visions really were given to John. And they, everything that is prophesied here really will take place. And again, it looks like evil's winning, doesn't it? We're watching uh, uh, in our country, we, we've expected a certain amount of, of, uh, of biblical influence, a certain uh, uh, biblical moral consensus, a Judeo-Christian ethic, and we've gotten used to that in our country. But to be honest with you, that's something of an anomaly throughout the world and church history. It's a luxury that many Western countries have enjoyed for a relatively short period of time, but throughout most of church history and most of the world, there's been an entirely different set of rules by which most people govern their lives. We're distressed because we see this moral consensus starting to erode and sometimes eroding on uh, exponentially. And by all appearance, the influence of the church seems to be declining in our culture. We see these odd and strange and blasphemous ideas springing up and gaining more and more traction. And again, it looks like evil is winning. And we can be tempted to fret and to wonder, where is God in all this? I just came back from Nepal. And I showed you a video link last Wednesday, Sunday night in my report. Uh, the pastor, Sarvajit, that I was with told us that in Nepal, or excuse me, in Nepal, it's 85% Hindu, 14% Muslim, about 1% of their population professes some form of Christianity, but that includes all stripes of craziness and, and includes Roman Catholicism, includes uh, uh, all, all confusion about the gospel. He said there's about one-tenth of 1% who understand the biblical gospel. Can you imagine living in a culture like that? Or, or the Islamic world, say Sudan. Christianity has very little visible influence. And we read the book of Revelation, and that's actually the, more like the world that these seven churches found themselves in. And so we read Revelation, and we see Jesus declaring he has authority over the entire world, that he will judge and defeat all of his enemies, and he will gather his people from every tribe and language and people and nation. And it's easy to look around us and say, how is that possible? The angel declares, these words are trustworthy, they're faithful, and they are true. Everything that is written in this book will certainly take place. And then the angel tells us, he declares the authority given to him. He was sent by the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets. He had this divine commission given to him from the very throne of God in heaven that he is to reveal what must soon take place. So the angel says to John, John, what I'm telling you, it's true. It's going to happen. You can bank your life on it. Everything I have declared to you, every vision you have seen, it will certainly come to pass. That echoes the 
very beginning of Revelation chapter 1, where we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave, gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to a servant, John. Now, we'll talk about what soon means in, in a few moments. But the angel testifies to John. These words are faithful and true. And then, then Jesus also testifies to his revelation. Verse 7, behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. But then he says in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about the things, these things for the churches. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He assures us he is coming soon. He makes that promise three times in this chapter. I'll address that a a bit more in a few moments. But in verse 16, he assures us, I sent my angel to testify about these things to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor and the Grace Baptist Church in Greenville, South Carolina uh, in 2022. And just so there's no confusion, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Jesus has used these references to himself several times in the book of Revelation to establish that he is eternal, that he has all sovereign authority over the entire creation. He alone has the power and the authority to accomplish what has been contained in this book. And in verse 16, when he says, I'm the root and the descendant of David, we understand Jesus is in the line of David. He is descended. David was his ancestor. He is the messianic king. He, uh, he sat, sits on the throne of his father, David, but he is also the root of David. He was before David. David comes from Jesus in the very same way that Jesus could declare in John 8, before Abraham was born, I am. Not I I existed, and I was, but I am. That's a declaration of his deity. I am God. And as God, I'm I'm eternal. I was before David. I am the root of David. And becoming human, taking on human flesh, I became the descendant of David. And then John testifies also in verse 8. He says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. The words he writes, he says, these really happened. I really did see these visions. These are not the musings of a crazy old man living on an island in the Mediterranean Sea. These scenes actually were revealed to me by God himself. This is not some fantasy cooked up in my imagination, but rather these words are trustworthy. They're true. They're from the angel. They're from the the Lord, from Jesus, through his angel given to me, John. Now, in chapter 1, when Jesus saw the glory of Jesus, or excuse me, when John saw the glory of Jesus, he, he describes the radiance of Jesus' glory. And he says, and I, I, I turned, I, I saw him, and he describes it, and he says, then I fell down at his feet as though dead. And Jesus did not correct him. He said, don't fear. I'm the first and the last. He raised him back up and revealed his glory further. But here... John falls down before the angel and worships him. And 
it's really interesting because John made the very same mistake in chapter 19. He's so overwhelmed by what the angel has told, told him. He falls down before the angel and worships him. And the angel says, both cases, you must not do this. Worship God. I'm a fellow servant with you and with, with, the, the, with the prophets, your brothers, the prophets. And in here in this, in this particular chapter, he adds, and with those fellow servants who keep the words of this book. That's us, those who are believers. And it's the very same description Jesus uses of the saints in verse 7. We keep the words of the prophecy of this book. So we have a threefold testimony. However hard it is to believe that this, this fantastic, seemingly fantasy of what is to come, it's actually true. And it's all going to happen. And yes, there are symbols in there that we don't fully understand right now, but we will then. And Jesus says, my honor is at stake. It's going to happen. Now, let's consider for a moment, he has testified of the reality of this. Let's look at the blessings that he promises. There are great blessings uh, throughout the book of Revelation. And if you remember, there is a number that is particularly important in the book of Revelation. There are several numbers, but the one that's most prominent is, of course, the number seven. And so, it shouldn't surprise us that throughout the book of Revelation, there are these seven proclamations of blessings, or seven beatitudes. Now, you say, what's a beatitude? Well, remember in Matthew 5, the beatitudes are those statements, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. The, the, the proclamation of blessing has come to be called a beatitude, because beatus, Latin, means happy. So, we find in Revelation these beatitudes sprinkled throughout the book. Martin Lloyd-Jones says the word beatitude means, uh, or, or, or blessed rather, means spiritually prosperous. I think that's a great way to think about these blessings. That is spiritual prosperity, fullness of joy. So, in, in Revelation 1, we read, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And then again, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, all, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds. Follow them. Or again, in Revelation chapter 16, verse 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. Or Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, and the angel said to me, blessed, or excuse me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And then Revelation 20, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. These are the first five blesseds or beatitudes in the book of Revelation. We find the last two, number six and seven, here in chapter 22. Verse seven, we find a blessing pronounced for obedience. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word, words of the prophecy of this book. This is very similar to the blessing pronounced in the first in chapter one, verse one. Blessed are those who read aloud. Here it's those who hear and keep this, the words of this prophecy. And that word, keep the words 
Observe the words. It's present tense, and it points to continuous action. Blessed is the one whose life is characterized by keeping the words of this prophecy. Those who have a lifestyle of faith, of obedience, of perseverance, of enduring to the very end. It's not something that we can do in our own strength. It's done in reliance upon the Lord Jesus by the help and the power of His Spirit. But Jesus pronounces this great blessing for all those who hear, who observe, who keep these words. But then in verse 14 in chapter 22, we find the blessing for, for faith or trust. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Now, I don't know if you have a red letter Bible or not. Uh, the ESV Red Letter Bible doesn't have those words in red. It has them in black. So it makes it seem like the angel said them. I take that back. Excuse me. ESV has it in red, which makes it sound like Jesus said them. And I tend to agree with that. I think Jesus is probably the one who, who pronounces this blessing. In the first five, sometimes it's Jesus, sometimes it's the angel. The reality is it doesn't really matter because the Spirit inspired these words. That's what matters the most. They're true. We can take them to the bank. God inspired these. God is the one who pronounces this blessing. And he says, blessed are those who washed their robes, meaning their sins have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Revelation chapter 7, there's this vast multitude, men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation, and they're before the Lord singing salvation uh, and glory belong to our God. And the elder turns to John and says, do you know who these people are? And John says, surely you know. And he's, the, the elder says to John, they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Same language. Those who appear before the throne cleansed of their sins by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not something you or I can do. You or I cannot cleanse your own sinful heart. We cannot wash our own robes. As we heard Matt say, he could not solve his sin problem. Neither can you and neither can I. You and I can do nothing to earn favor before God. We can do nothing to help our case before the bar of his justice. But having our robes washed clean, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that's a gift of free and sovereign grace. It's a gift that you and I do not deserve. We could never earn, and we, uh, we don't have to even maintain it in our own strength. We obey because of what he's done. We don't obey in order to continue what he's done. Our obedience is an expression of life, not a term or condition for life. This is all received by faith. That's what it means to have your robes washed. It means to put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And two great blessings flow from having your robes washed white. One is that you have the right to the tree of life, meaning eternal life. Remember Adam and Eve, when they sinned in the garden, they were cast out of the garden, and the reason given was so they may not eat of the tree of life in their sinful condition. To live forever in their sin would have been the ultimate tragedy. But having been cleansed and redeemed and the curse completely removed, we can eat freely of that tree of life with this wonderful variety of different fruit every month, year after year after century after century after epoch or uh, uh, however long for all eternity. 
We might eat of the tree of life, and we may, may enter the city by the gates, meaning we are citizens of the new Jerusalem that John has been describing in chapters 21 and 22. And these are great blessings for every single person who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of us, our sins are completely and totally washed white as snow. Though your sins be scarlet, they shall be white as snow, we read in Isaiah. But those who refuse to trust in Christ, verse 15 tells us their their sins are not cleansed outside of the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. The culture that we live in today is embracing many of these sins and saying, no, they're not sins. They're, they're, you know, you're just being narrow-minded. You're not with the times. <laughs> they were saying that in Rome 2,000 years ago. Rampant immorality was accepted. And in fact, in Corinth, Temple prostitution was considered part of their idolatrous worship. Let that sink in. I am being faithful and zealous and religious by going to the temple and engaging a prostitute. That was considered virtuous. Child sacrifice was considered a good thing. Nothing new under the sun. But they will be outside they're still in their sins. They're, they're, they're banished from the city gates. Tonight, Pastor Mark will be continuing his, uh, his uh, treatment of the ninth commandment, bearing, do not bear false witness. And we see here, uh, outside are those who, who, who practice falsehood and who, or who love and practice falsehood. Why do liars lie? They lie because they love it. They love falsehood. They prefer it to the consequences of telling the truth, whatever that may be. Some lie for the adventure of deceiving people because it gives them a sense of power. Some lie to cover up their own sins. They lie for a lot of reasons. I won't preach Mark's message here. But recognize the seriousness of violation of the ninth commandment. But apart from repentance and faith, those here in this representative list, it's not exhaustive. There's a, a vast array of sins that will condemn your soul. The reality is we're born guilty in Adam. And we're sinners from birth, but we, because we're sinners, we sin. And we sin with a passion. And we're condemned unless we repent of our sins and turn to the Lord Jesus John chapter 3, remember the wonderful promise of chapter, verse 16, that God loved the world so much he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And then John goes on to say, uh, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through, the, through his son the world might be saved. And then he gives a solemn declaration in verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And my friend, if you're not believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've not washed your robes clean and white in his blood, Scripture says you stand condemned already. And the only refuge is to run to the Lord Jesus Christ and put your faith and your hope and your trust in him. Why would you not do that? Why would you not run to Christ? Because these words are trustworthy and they're true. Not only the promises and the blessings, but the warnings and the threats. We read next that that 
Jesus' coming is imminent. Verse 10 and following, he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. When we speak of Jesus' return, we often speak of the imminence of Christ's return, meaning it could happen any time. And we find that truth emphasized over and over in chapter 22. The angel in his command says, don't seal up this, uh, these words. Why? Because the, end, the time's near. Let the evil doer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Now, when he says, don't seal up the words of this prophecy, uh, that, that might sound strange. Why would you do that? But remember, to make sense and to understand Revelation, we have to understand that John frequently hundreds of times, is appealing to the Old Testament, either quoting it uh, directly or Old Testament references. And here, John is appealing or referring to the prophecy given to Daniel in chapter 12. Daniel 12, verse 4, the Lord says, you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. See, the end when Daniel was receiving prophecy was not near. Messiah had not yet come. Redemption had not been accomplished. He had not died and risen again and been exalted to the right hand of the throne of God the Father. The time, the end was not near. And so God revealed to Daniel this, this, this prophecy, and he said, but seal it up. I'm not real sure what it was that he was not allowed to tell us. We'll find out someday, I expect. But here John has said, don't seal it up, because the time is near Publish abroad what you have seen and what you have heard that all men might know and that my people might have hope, that the unbeliever might be warned and that he might uh, uh, hear the gracious invitations and, and heed the warnings and flee from the wrath to come and take refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not seal up these words. Publish them abroad. And then he makes this very curious proclamation in verse 11. The first half is, is a call to, uh, excuse me, the second half is a call to perseverance. Uh, let the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. And we understand that. Uh, it, in, in the face of persecution, in the face of discouragement or affliction, we're called to persevere in righteousness and holiness and obedience. And Jesus held out in uh, chapters 2 and 3, these messages to the churches, he held out wonderful promises uh, in, in heaven for those who endure to the very end, those who overcome. But what he says in the first half of the verse strikes us as very unusual. It, it, it seems like the angel is saying to the wicked, it's okay to, keep, to just go on and, and keep being wicked. And, and we scratch our heads and say, What? But we find the answer to that also in Daniel chapter 12. Verse 10 says, many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refined. I hope that's true of every single man, woman, boy, and girl in this room. That we will purify ourselves by running to Christ and being made clean. But the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. So basically what the angel is saying here is, the righteous cling to Christ. He's not giving instructions, though. He's not issuing a decree. He's merely acknowledging the inevitable. If the evildoer is intent on doing evil, let it be so. And it's a solemn warning to everyone who's intent on going his own way. Everyone who prefers his own sin 
to obedience to Christ, who thinks he knows a better way than Jesus. Isn't that the message the world is telling us? That, that following Jesus is, is, is for losers and for fools? Paul says, I, I delight in being a fool for Christ. But throughout history, people have looked at Christians and saying, why would you believe such a thing? And why would you live such a life? It's foolishness to them. And yet we find here is the ultimate wisdom. But those who insist on clinging to their folly and their rebellion and their rejection of God, it's as if the angel says, well, so be it. Hear me, if you're not a Christian this morning, if Jesus Christ is not your Lord and Savior, I would ask you, why not? Why would you continue to clothe yourself with filthy garments? Why would you uh, continue to remain, as God's Word says, an evildoer whose robes are not washed in the blood of the Lamb? Because there's going to be a time when the opportunity to repent will pass. Let me say that again. The time will come when the opportunity to repent will pass. I was 13 years old, eighth grade, before the Lord really showed me once and for all what a hypocrite I was. Grew up in the church. I think I was actually the president of my eighth grade Sunday school class. (laughs) I could pray with the best of them. I could answer all the Sunday school questions correctly. And I was a rebel at heart, intent on going my own way, leading a total double life. And the Lord showed me my folly and my sin, and I realized I'm not a Christian. And I said, okay, God, I'll make a deal. If you'll let me have all the fun that I want to have through high school and college, I promise I'll become a Christian before I get married. I literally said that, and I told other people that, like that was somehow virtuous or wise. It's not, it's the dumbest thing in the world. How do you know that you'll see tomorrow? How do you know that your heart won't be so hardened you couldn't care less? John, or or Paul says, now is the favorable time. This, today is the day of salvation. If God is tugging on your heartstrings, don't put it off to some other day. There is a time when the opportunity to repent is going to pass. I can't say when that day will be. But don't gamble on Jesus' return. It could be any time. And when he comes, it will be too late. Why would you put off having your robes washed, your heart cleansed, your conscience renewed, your soul restored? Psalm 1611, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The enemy holds out pleasures, but they're not forevermore. They're temporary pleasures. They're passing. They have, uh, in, in, in his book, Precious Remedies for Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks says, Satan presents the bait, which is pleasing, and he hides the hook, which is not pleasing. There is no hook with the pleasures of Christ. There's freedom, and there's fullness. Why? Why? Would you put that away? Why would you put off running straight to the throne of grace of the Lord Jesus? In verse 12, we we see this divine proclamation from the Lord himself. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. If you have rejected him, you don't want that recompense, I promise. 
I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Jesus' return is imminent. Now, what does that really mean, right? I mean, these words were written almost 2,000 years ago. So how soon is soon? In what sense can Jesus say 2,000 years ago, and can I read it today and say he is coming soon? Well, in the book of Daniel, he was told, seal it up because the time's not near. Now in the book of Revelation, we're told the time is near. In Daniel's era of redemptive history, there was much left that yet must be done. Messiah must come. He must take on to himself human flesh. He is God, and yet he took to himself manhood. He obeyed the law, even though he was the lawgiver. He learned obedience through what was suffered. He established a perfect human righteousness, and then he died on the cross to pay for our sins. He was buried. He rose. He ascended to the right hand of God the Father. All has been accomplished. The only thing left is for Jesus to come back. He's coming soon. He has come. He has accomplished our redemption. He has done all these things. And the events that John has prophesied about, they're in the process of being fulfilled even as we speak. But again, how soon is soon? Well, Peter, addressing that question, says, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God's timetable and our timetable are quite different. Jesus makes it clear over and over, no one knows the day and the time. Paul says that he is going to come like a thief in the night. The emphasis in the Old Testament is not be pointing to dates and times and calendars. It's to be ready. It's to be ready for whenever he does come. Every generation in church history has looked at their culture, their time, their place, their uh, conditions, and they've said, surely this must be the end. They look at the signs of the times and say, surely Jesus is going to return soon. I remember when I was in high school, uh, Israel had been reestablished as a nation in 1948, and there was a dispensationalist author who was very popularly uh, saying that 40 years after that, uh, that happens, the same generation is going to see the coming of Christ, so Jesus has to come by 1988. He didn't. And there was a well-known writer that wrote a book called 88 Reasons Jesus Will Come by 1988. And when he didn't, the next year he wrote a, a new edition, 89 Reasons. And the 89th was because he didn't come last year. That's, not, that, that's true from as far as I know. I've been told that. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus tells people, he points to the signs of the times, wars and rumors of wars and famines and stuff, and he said, but the end is not yet. See, we look at these wars and go, surely that's a sign of the time that Jesus is coming back. Jesus said those signs don't mean the end is coming. Then there's going to be tribulation. There's going to be uh, this great apostasy. There's going to be... That's been going on for 2,000 years. So to point to anything happening right now in our day and time and saying, this certainly must be the return of Jesus. I hope it is. Oh, Lord, come quickly. But let's be very careful about setting times and dates on our calendars. Our longing is that Jesus will come in our lifetime. Some of you college students are saying it'd be really nice if he'd come before next week when I have my final exams. Some that are planning to get married were like, oh, wait until after that. But we can't know 
When will our Lord return? But the longing of our hearts, verse 17, is the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who's thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Throughout the New Testament, the longing of saints is return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, Paul says, Maranatha, meaning, come, Lord Jesus. In Titus chapter 2, Paul speaks of the grace of God that brings salvation to all men, all kinds of men. It trains us to live godly lives in the present age while we look with eagerness at the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here we have this longing expressed by the Spirit and the bride. Come, the Spirit longs. Think about that. The Holy Spirit longs for the return of Jesus. Come. And the bride, uh, which is the church, that's all believers in Jesus Christ, longing for the return of Jesus. Our hearts are set upon him. And we long that he would come for us. But again, to be very honest, our lives here in the U.S. is kind of comfortable, which can confuse that longing and make it seem like, okay, well, it's fine if he comes. If you're desperate... If you're living in grinding poverty, if you're in northern Kenya where there's famine, if you're living in uh, uh, China or Sudan or Saudi Arabia where there's persecution and you can't gather in a nice comfortable room like this to worship the Lord, even so come Lord Jesus, you can't wait. And if your life is in constant danger because of your faith in Jesus Christ or simply because of sore affliction from living in a broken and fallen world, there's a part in you that cries out, oh God, would you send your son quickly? John urges all who hear this or read this prophecy to join that chorus and say, come, Lord Jesus. But then we have this invitation, and the thirsty may come. It's not too late. If you desire, you may take the waters of life without price. For me, when I I was 13, when I made my deal with God, which he didn't honor, uh, when I was 14, he, he awakened me and showed me I, I couldn't live another day without him. So I began to beg and plead that God would save me. And I truly believed for about 24 hours <laughs> that I'd send away my day of grace, that that I, which I don't think is a biblical, I don't know where I got that phrase from, but I believed God would save anybody but me. And by God's grace, I realized I was told that he'll receive all who come to him. Whoever wants to may come. Come. He calls out, come, you may come, you must come. And so even as the saints and angels say to the Lord Jesus, come with us, we say to those who are outside of Christ, or excuse me, as we say to Jesus, come to us, we say with those outside of Christ, come with us to that throne of grace, to that fountain of living water. You may come. You must come. The longing of your soul will be finally satisfied. Now, this desire for the return of Jesus is is a legitimate longing that ought to be in every one of our hearts, but I'm going to be careful here. Because I've seen Christians who made foolish decisions because they assumed it's got to be very, very soon. I had a friend in seminary, first year of seminary, he dropped out of school With tears in his eyes, he said, if Jesus comes back and finds me in seminary, what am I going to say to him? You are faithfully preparing. (laughs) You're doing what he called. Somebody's going to be in seminary when Jesus comes back, I hope. 
40 years later, does he have his education to be a, an equipped minister of the gospel? I don't know. I don't know. I met a, a brother in Nepal who was a college professor, fluent in English, training uh, potentially for the gospel ministry, and, and realized they're desperate for men who can translate good books, uh, the, the Bible study notes from the Reformation Study Bible into the Nepali language, and said, brother, could it be that God would use you to do such a thing? The impact you would make doing that would last for generations. Well, what if Jesus comes back the day before the book comes out of publication? Would that be a waste of his time? No. Of course not. He would have been found faithful in what he was doing. And if Jesus doesn't come back for 500 more years, all those generations would have the fruit of that labor. Let's think clearly about what it means to long for the return of our Savior. Jesus did not encourage us to set dates and times. He said, be faithful and be fruitful and be ready. And the way to be ready is to labor at what he's put in front of you until he comes and relieves you of that responsibility. And Jesus holds that out. But then he pivots to a warning in verses 8 and 9, 18 and 19. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to the plagues described in this book. And the plagues described in this book are terrible. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. I believe Jesus is the one issuing this warning. But again, it doesn't matter. It's inspired by the Spirit of God. It makes the most sense to me to be coming from the mouth of Jesus. But the emphasis here is on the absolute holiness and trustworthiness of the Word of God. Do not add anything to it. Do not take away anything from it. The Word is true, and it's timeless. And the shifting changes of cultural winds should not affect how we view our Bibles. The truth contained in it is unchanging. The morality changed in it or contained in it is unchanging. The promises contained in it, the glory revealed in it, it all never, ever will change. The cultural pressures to compromise with the values of this world, they're, they're, they're intense, they're powerful, they're subtle. And we must clear it with a clear mind, compare everything to the Word of God and take every thought captive to the knowledge of God revealed to us in His Word. People push all of their ideas. They don't know what they're talking about. Yesterday's fad has blown up in people's faces today, and today's fad's going to blow up in their faces tomorrow. God knows all. He knows the end from the beginning. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He is all wise, and He tells us the truth. We must hold to that truth. And you might say, well, you know, it seems like there's so many people turning away from the Bible today. Maybe there's something to that. How could so many people be wrong? Ask the Christian in Iran that question. Or the Christian in Nepal, which one-tenth of one percent believe the Bible and biblical Christianity. How could so many people be so wrong? They're very wrong. See, we're used to a culture that is more friendly to the truth that we embrace but again, I think that's an anomaly in all of church history. If we read Revelation 2 and 3, I think you get that impression. So it should not surprise us that the world around us rejects the Word of God. It should surprise us when they don't reject God's Word. And the Lord Jesus says it's a very serious thing to take away 
You say you're in Christ, and you neglect his word. You reject his word. You modify his word. You take away. You add to it. If you add to it, he says, I'll add the plagues contained in this book. If you take away from it, he says, I'll take you away. That invitation to the tree of life and the holy city, it's a matter of eternal life and death. Dear friends, if you're a Christian, you've got the Bible, the revealed word of God. It's a treasure, and it's real, and it's true. Hold fast to it. No matter what, and no matter who does or does not. And then we find here, Jesus gives us that warning, but then he gives us that, 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 that final promise. Verse 20, he who testifies these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. He testifies, I'm coming soon. We don't know when soon is, but it'll be soon enough. And so we respond with an earnest cry, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. I want to say this reverently. Jesus is more eager to come for his bride than his bride is for him to come for us. Think about that. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. He loves us more than we could ever love him. Do you realize that? Jesus loves you more than you could ever love him, even in heaven. And his love for you now is beyond what you could imagine. He cannot wait in one sense to take you to himself that where he is, you and I may be also. He's more excited about that day than we are. So he says, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon, I'm coming soon. And so we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. May it be soon.